0: Can you remember the last time you looked right at something and didn't see it? If you have a good friend with you, they might be able to remind you, or if you have a spouse with you, they'll certainly be glad to remind you. But this happens to me all the time in the grocery store, and Sarah can attest to this, and some of you can too, because our paths have crossed in the grocery store, and you've noticed a pattern, which you've then texted me about. I'll start in the aisle where you are, And I'll grab an item and I'll talk with you. And then I'll go to the next aisle. And then I'll realize I forgot something in the previous aisle and come back to it. And then I'll go a little farther. And then I'll realize I forgot something else in the same aisle. And so if you're sort of zooming out and seeing this in slow motion, what you're seeing is me return to the same aisle three times, separated by one minute, and just a tremendous amount of shame. This happens to me regularly when I go grocery shopping, and I've tried to find the root cause. I think sometimes it's just because I'm distracted. There's something I'd rather be paying attention to when I go to the grocery store than grocery shopping. I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm engaging in the conversation with you, on the phone with somebody, just not paying any quality attention to the thing that's right in front of me. Sometimes it's because I'm in a hurry. I don't enjoy grocery shopping, I wanna get in, I wanna get out, I don't want to think very much. I don't want to linger. It's not a good place just to hang out. And so ironically, in my rush to finish grocery shopping, I go right by the items I was supposed to see. Sometimes it's because I don't even know what I'm looking for. We've had to go gluten-free over the past couple weeks, and I confess to you that as I go through Meijer and Aldi, I could walk by just a slew of gluten-free items and not know what I'm looking for, even if they slap me in the face. Sometimes, this has become especially true as our kids' snacks have become slightly more expensive and they're eating more. Sometimes, I just don't want to see it. (laughs) I'll go buy the item that Ezra asked for in the aisle, not pay very much good attention to it, not purchase it, and then I'll go home and he'll ask and I'll say, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. They must have been out. Whatever the reason... This happens to me just about every time I go to Aldi or Meyer. The thing that I'm supposed to be looking at, I just completely miss. And I'm realizing as I've read 1 Corinthians over the past couple weeks preparing for today, that I've walked right past this scripture passage over and over and over and over. Just about every wedding I've ever been to, including my own, has read 1 Corinthians 13. It was a relief today to hear it read from a platform on which other people will not be getting married very shortly. I've heard it over and over and over. And it's used in wedding passages to call our minds to the best of what marriage and romantic love can be. I've heard it so frequently that I've looked right at it and I've missed it. 1 Corinthians is a really, really, really hard book. Paul is writing to a group of people who've gotten entangled In all sorts of things that aren't ultimately good for them. He writes to this church in Corinth about disrespect of sexuality, about worship and entanglement with idols, about a desire to approach other people and take advantage of them for their own gain. He says, to the church, this is the way that many of you used to live. And if you're not careful, these are the habits and the patterns and the desires that you may very easily fall back into again. Things that undermine your public integrity. Things that diminish your ability to live a free life. Things that complicate your relationships and that feel pleasurable in the moment. But lead only to regret. Regret. That's the kind of people you were, he says. There's hardly another passage in the Bible that's hard to, harder to say, thanks be to God, after than that, right? You hear it and you say, okay. And so you can almost hear the anxiety and the tension and the defensiveness grow within the church in Corinth as whoever's job it is to read this very hard letter reads it in public. And then Paul turns and says, those are the things that you did before. But now, you're different. You're washed. You were sanctified. You were given a hope and a future, given the Spirit of God. And you can almost hear the congregation go, "Ooh, glad that's over. But then, there's the other half of today's passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul turns his attention to people who need correction, not because of loose living or because they're pursuing a course of action that will overtly blow up their life, but... People who need correction because they're trying really hard to do what's right, but they're missing it. Sometimes being in church disentangles us from habits and patterns of sin that we have been enslaved to for a long time. As I was seeing the scripture being read this morning, I didn't know until this morning who was going to be reading it. And I look at the names and the faces of the people that were on this platform. And can see proof that God has used this church to disentangle the very people who read from unloving habits in their own life and convert them in their spirit, in their habits, in their temperament to a new way of living. These people not only read the scripture about love well, they love well. We have proof of concept of this all over our church. There are people who, when you started attending here, when you started being part of this community, were fundamentally different human beings than you are right now. So the church can be a really powerful entity for transforming the inner life of a person. The church can also be a really good teacher at how to sin over and over again in ways that are more acceptable. Some of us, the longer we've been tethered to a church community, learn not to sin as publicly or as boldly as we did before we knew better. We sin subtly and continually in quiet ways that grow submerged underneath a veneer of righteousness that we've learned how to cultivate because we've been in a church long enough to know how to act respectable while remaining rotten. This is what seems to be happening to the church in Corinth. In sharp contrast to people who are sinning boldly and publicly and proudly, there's a group of people who are devoted believers. They're earnest in desiring to live what they would call the spiritual life. They believe that God's given them spiritual gifts, and then if they're able to hone those gifts, it'll give them a hotline to heaven so that they can really be in tune with God. They're especially enamored, uh, as you read the background of the text, with the gift of tongues or otherworldly languages and of prophecy, the ability to speak a message from God to the people of God in a way that ripples out into the future. And so they build their lives around developing these gifts. And they come to church and they use these gifts. And then they go back into their houses, into their neighborhoods, into their workplaces, to relationships that, despite the gift of God, are not characterized by the love of God. They try incredibly hard to understand the tongues of angels, but they don't try at all to understand the neighbor that they have a grievance with. They're curious about the mysteries of the heavens, but can't be bothered to be curious about someone they resent They can speak a prophetic word, even one that's true, even one that's given by the Holy Spirit, and have relationships that are marked by mistreatment and resentment and tension that they carry around with them in every relationship that they exist in. The idea that people can grow in their capacity, in their spiritual gifts, the idea that people can nourish what God has planted in their character, in their gift set, and yet remain resentful and tense, and unchanged by grace is chilling. These people really were more competent at prophecy, at tongues, at wisdom and knowledge. They knew much more than most of us do about spiritual formation. And yet it didn't sink into the root of who they were. Paul writes right into the middle of this situation and says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I really can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that's strong enough to move mountains, but I don't have love. I'm nothing. If I give everything I can possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I can boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. In other words, it's possible to do spiritually beneficial things. Develop your faith, build your knowledge. Morally correct things. Give to the poor. Give your body over to suffering. Work for justice in your community even when it damages your reputation or your selfhood. It's possible to do spiritual things and moral things and still miss the main thing, which is to live a life of love. Church, I wonder how often we've done that too. I wonder how often... Those of us in this community who are religious and sincere as we are have focused so much on building skills for a godly life that we've forgotten to build a loving life. How often have we done our best to cultivate a hotline to heaven, whether in our public work for justice or or our private acts of devotion, even as we act out of tension and anger and resentment that we carry with us into every relationship in which we belong. It's really easy to do. Many of us gauge how we're doing spiritually based on how well we're keeping up with our religious to-do list, whether we were conscious and aware of it or whether it crept in subtly. Many of our scorecard for the Christian life goes very, very little farther, very little beyond reading the Bible, praying, serving in church and tithing. If you do those things, you're good. Paul's, those are good things. Hear me say that. Please continue to tithe. Uh, Please continue to attend church. We love this. We live on 10%. So this is great. Uh, The first thing that Paul says here, maybe to pay attention to, isn't that narrow religious scorecard. The thing to pay attention to if you want to know how you're doing spiritually is the quality of relationships with people around you. Which is exactly The thing that many of us avoid paying attention to. Maybe it's because we're distracted. We're continuing to go through our lives thinking that something else is more important to pay attention to. Maybe it's because we're in a hurry. We're moving so fast that even if even if a call to a different way of life is there, we don't see it. Maybe it's because we think this is normal, and we wouldn't know what a loving life looked like if it slapped us in the face. Or maybe it's because we know how costly it would be to change. And if we're honest, we'd rather move right on by an invitation to live a different life. Because honestly, we really just don't want to see it. Jesus said, this is how the world you will will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And if that was true, we wouldn't be able to put enough chairs in churches. There'd be so many people that would want to come in. What's true now, the thing we're known by... Uh, is our arguments, by our hunger for influence, by our defensive positions on cultural issues. If you look at the news and see how many publicly notable Christians are treating other people badly, you could easily be fooled into thinking that this verse read, if I speak with all wisdom and knowledge and understanding but have not love, I'll get a book deal. But here Paul is laying it all out for us, reminding us that we can have whatever success we want in life, whatever morality we want in life. But if we don't have love, we're hanging curtains in a house with a rotten foundation. And so if I can, I'd like us to focus on what Paul means when he talks about what love does. We would tend to define love as pretty syrupy and sappy and decorative But what Paul's describing here is a different kind of thing. He's saying that love is patient, that love is able to endure trouble and misfortune and offenses that life will deal you. He's trying to say that love is kind, that love looks at other people and is gentle and attentive toward the person in front of them, that love isn't jealous In other words, that love celebrates what we already have without being possessive over it. That love isn't boastful or proud. That operating out of love allows us to represent ourselves not better than we are or worse than we are, but just as we are. That love isn't shameful or selfish. That love leaves us unable to approach other people in relationship thinking what we can get out of them. That love isn't poisoned by anger or resentment. In other words, we're slow to keep track of the things that other people in our life have done wrong. Love rejoices with what's true, even when it's really difficult to hear or really difficult to say. That love protects. This doesn't mean that love doesn't allow people to be hurt by their own patterns of action that are harmful to them. It does mean that when you can, you step in to protect a person from the worst consequences of their action in their life. And love hopes over and over again. Love works toward what could be. And so it's no wonder that this kind of love is durable and unfailing because this kind of love isn't just like a decorative thing. It's not, oh, good, very nice. This kind of love is the character of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's way of being human, applied to our way of being human by the power of the Holy Spirit. Faith and hope and love remain, but the greatest of these is love, because if you love, really love, the people that are in your life, the Holy Spirit will build in you and through you, into the people in your life, the kind of life you can take with you into eternity. Eternal life, we often think, is just whatever happens after we die. It's a quantity of life lasting from now until forever. What Paul is saying, I think anyway, is that eternal life is also a quality of life. It's the type of life you live now in love that can survive into heaven. You'll live, and this kind of life will keep on multiplying. You'll die, and the things that you've planted in love and the people you you leave behind will outlive you. You'll get to heaven, and you'll still need it, especially because there are going to be a lot of people there you never thought would make it. Love is truly one thing that you can't outgrow from now until the end of time. You're going to need it. But boy, this is hard to live out. I hate that. Now that we have information, it's incumbent upon us to like live it out, you know. And so what I'd like to do, if I can this morning, is to give you four reasons to opt out. Four reasons not to realign your life around love. Number four is that it'll cost you a normal life. Any psychologists in the room uh, who enjoy family systems theory... This is your moment, okay? Most of our life comes down to our definition of normal. When we grew up, we learned from our first home what temperature to sleep at, what brand of macaroni to buy, what kind of ice cream, and how much to keep in the freezer. And then when we move out, we usually find, as you know we have a roommate or get married or whatever, we find that those definitions of normal bump up against other people's definitions of normal. What we often don't think about is the way that our first homes calibrate us in love. We learn from the first place we were born into how to treat our enemies, how to handle difficult disagreements, how to treat people who believe really differently than we do, and even how we earn other people's approval. As we grow into adulthood, we carry that picture of normal with us from our home. And we have to choose how much of that to embrace and carry on into adulthood and then how much of it to leave behind as we grow into a different picture of what our future could be. But no matter how we grew up, no matter where we grew up, no matter who we grew up with, most of us didn't learn what Paul was talking about when he talks about love. Very few homes, even the most religious and sincere ones who helped you nourish your spiritual gifts didn't teach you a whole lot about bearing with other people's flaws. Even the best homes don't always do a very good job of unconsciously or consciously teaching about what it means in your relationships to persevere through when you're offended. Very few houses are very good at keeping no record of wrong. Very few homes teach us and calibrate us in our default settings to commit sacrificially to others' well being. Even fewer teach us what it means to have people at your table who are not like you, who believe differently than you, and approach them not as people to be convinced, but people to be embraced. The assignment, if you choose to accept it, is to help your home, your dorm room, your office become a school of love. It already is. You just probably haven't been thinking about it very much. People who come into your home, who come into your dorm room, who come into your office, learn something from your way of, of carrying yourself about what you think it means to love and relate to other people. The assignment, if you choose to accept it, is to become a school of love in which folks are received and built up and sent out, better than they were when they came to you. That kind of life is really good and yet it's really costly. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It'll cost you attention. It'll cost you resources. And so reason number four to opt out is that if you think those things are costly and too high a price to pay, it would be good for you not to opt in. Number three It'll cost you your image or your self-concept or your pride. To love another person is to face your own frailty. If you really love a person, sooner or later, you're going to let them down, and then you're going to have to admit to them, and even harder to yourself, that you've hurt them, that there are things about you that are, are both imperfect and unhealthy, and that all the repentance in your life is not just a past event, but it's something you're going to keep having to do. That's really good. It's really hard. It's really hard to approach someone that you love the most and tell them that you've let them down and that your frailty, your brokenness, your wounds are theirs to deal with too, and you have to admit it. So if what you're interested in is protecting your standing before other people and not having to get close enough that people have to bear the load of your own failure, you should opt out. Number two, it'll cost you emotional distance. Resentment is really bad, but man, does it feel good. It's one of our best defenses against being in a relationship with people who have hurt us. When somebody does something hurtful to us, we can either in our head or with our community demean other people as a strategy of self-protection. It's not a good thing, but it's a true thing. Have you experienced this? Someone hurts you, you talk with others about them and see how you can turn them against other people. Someone's done that to you in your life, I'm sure. Love invites us not to avoid being truthful about another person's dysfunction, but to see them as more than just the most annoying thing about them. Even the most infuriating person in your life bears God's image, and you are not free to treat them as less than that. If you're uncomfortable with honoring even people you most dislike, this adjustment's really not for you. Reason number one very few people will know if you don't realign your life around love. Almost every change or any project in our lives gets accomplished because it has two things an audience, one, and a deadline. It's why we finish presentations for work. It's why we clean the house before company comes. Why we join running clubs to motivate ourselves to exercise. And it's why sermons get preached not just when a pastor has something to say, but every week. Amen. (laughs) Careful. Think of something that you actually accomplished in your life recently. Not just wished for, but like actually did. And the odds are it's tied to an audience and a deadline. But when it comes to a loving life, the audience is incredibly small because only the people that are closest to you will know the difference between you living a really loving life and just acting loving. And there's no deadline for this kind of thing. You can prioritize other goals. You can do everything in public that makes you seem righteous and holy and even loving and quietly neglect to practice love within your most important relationships and you can live that way until you die and the people closest to you will have to reckon with how much you worked to act loving in public and how little you worked on really loving when the doors were closed. People at your funeral will affirm things in you that your family will not be able to resonate with because you worked so hard on acting loving that you didn't pay any attention to the people that were closest to you. But the folks on the outside will think you're great. There's no measure for this. There's no deadline for this that we know about. There's just choices that we make from now until the end of our life that harden into our character and make us the kind of people who either have relationships that are shriveled from neglect or relationships that are vibrant because of love. So if you're interested more in the quality of your reputation... Than in the quality of your relationships, you should opt out. It's really quiet in here. That's a lot of really good reasons to opt out. I have only one reason to opt in, and that's because it's this, a loving life is the only way to a full life. In our, I think after all, in our chasing and our striving for importance. And in our addictions and our resentments and our disordered attachments and our attempts to control and avoid and submerge and just not think about dark things in our life that we prefer not to think about. In the loneliness in the tiredness and the junk food gratification we reach to to fill needs that we don't even have words for, what we're really chasing is love. A sense that we're cherished, not just for our performance, not just for our righteousness, not just for our accomplishments, or the social image that we project before others. I think most of us are hoping that despite our worst moments and deepest doubts, we can receive the love of someone who looks, looks us right in the eye and says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. You cannot outrun my commitment to your good. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. And it's the kind of people that God has made it possible for us to become in some small way to the people that God's placed in our life. The good news is that the power source for this kind of loving life isn't my ability to feel affection and lovey-dovey all the time, especially about people that are hard to love. Thanks be to God. The power source for this kind of life is the Holy Spirit placing within me a new heart so that instead of pointing my relationships toward my benefit and my comfort and my gain, I can have a life pointed outward toward other people. That's just the kind of life that ages well. That's all it is. And yet it's not a life that happens by accident. It's life in the Spirit learned over time by taking on the habits of love. And so church, I wonder if you know this morning what habit of love you need to be taking on more frequently in your life. If you're struggling with patience and you're noticing that you're consistently moving in a hurry or that you have a short fuse with other people, maybe the habit that you need to commit to is Sabbath or taking a little sablet if you can't do a whole one. Or maybe it's scheduling a two-hour block of time or four 30-minute ones throughout your week where you can sit and just be with somebody that you love instead of constantly rushing on to the next thing, even good as it is. Maybe some of us need to focus on keeping no record of wrongs because if we're honest, we're really, really good at making a ledger of all the ways in which other people have wronged us and pondering those things without ever telling them or attempting to make it right. We might need to write down our hurt and then get accountability this week for one way we're going to carry that hurt to closure. There are some spaces where reconciliation isn't possible. Trauma, abuse, neglect. Some of those things don't call for a face-to-face conversation. But if you don't do anything to steward it, it'll continue to sink down unsaid but poisonous into the heart of your character. So maybe it's scheduling a counseling session this week with somebody. Maybe it's having a hard conversation with somebody who's offended you. Whatever it takes this week to press into one step toward healthy resolution. Others of us might need to prioritize ridding ourselves from being boastful or proud. Maybe this week in our conversations, we need to ask for accountability for how many times we speak about ourselves as better than we really are. Maybe we need to pause for three seconds before we say something about ourselves in a conversation at all. So instead of pointing other people toward being impressed with us, we can listen well enough to actually be impressed with a person right in front of us through whom God may be trying to teach us something. There's another side of pride, too, though, and that's false strength. Maybe the most loving thing we can do for some of us this week is to stop pretending that we're okay. When, in fact, we've been struggling for a good long time. Maybe we need to step into letting a friend or a few trusted friends know the frailty that's crept into our heart by tension over time. On the screen is a simplified version of Paul's list of what it means to live a loving life. I think we could list habits for each one of these, but I imagine that God's already speaking to you about how in your life you need to realign and be more patient or kind or not jealous, no longer boastful or proud or using other people as objects for your own gain. not poisoned by anger or resentment, instead being slow to keep track of other people's offenses. Maybe God's speaking to you already about what it would mean in your life for you to rejoice in what's true, even when it's hard to say, to protect somebody you love from the harshness of life that's attacking them right now, or to hope, which means working toward what could be. We're gonna keep that list up there for another few minutes, but for now, I wonder if you can call up in your mind, a person who's taught you to age well into love. I lost my grandmother not terribly long ago, and in the year of reflecting on things that I've learned from her, I realized that maybe the biggest lesson I learned was how to age into love, which is saying something because she was a spunky piece of work. She raised Corvettes as a young woman and worked in the governor's office, has a lot of Accomplishments that could be acknowledged. But this was the main thing for her. I remember um, years ago, she was in a pretty hard season for her. Uh, a season she would tell you, I think, if she were here, that was full of pretty deep discouragement. And we'd call and she'd talk pretty candidly about the season that she was going through. And in the middle of it, though, it was punctuated. With stories of people in her life that she just kept showing up for. She told me the story of one person who had been unemployed for a while but was able to get a new job, and another person who was a young single parent wondering how to stay afloat, other people who were struggling with addictions and were stepping into recovery in that local congregation, learning what it meant to be made new, and other people still who were going through with her seasons of discouragement and darkness that they wondered if would ever end wondering if they could look in the mirror someday soon and see a person staring back at them that they recognized because it had been a long time. And I wondered out loud to her how she stayed in it, committed again and again to the people that God called her to love. And she said this, and I wrote it down, which I'm glad for. She said, when you realize how much God loves you, it makes you really love other people, even those who can sometimes seem unlovely. When I wake up in the middle of the night or before I go to sleep, or when I first wake up in the morning, I ask God to clear a path for the people in my life to walk toward the things that are good for them. And then I get out of bed in the morning And I try my best to do what love requires. Church, I wonder if you know what love requires in your life.